This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by The Dragon's Blade by Michael R. Miller, a fast-paced epic fantasy series perfect for fans of Phil Tucker, David Estes, and Brandon Sanderson. The complete Dragon's Blade trilogy is available now on Amazon and Audible. Learn more over at michaelrmiller.co.uk. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 466 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Jason Schreier. He's the author of the book Blood, Sweat, and Pixels, the triumphant, turbulent stories behind how video games are made. And he's also contributed to outlets such as Wired, The New York Times, Edge, Paste, Killscreen, and The Onion News Network. He's currently a reporter at Bloomberg News, and he previously spent eight years at the video game website Kotaku. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new book, Press Reset, Ruin and Recovery in the Video Game Industry, which highlights poor working conditions among game developers. And today's show is brought to you by The Dragon's Blade, an epic fantasy trilogy by Michael R. Miller. The Dragon's Blade is available now on Amazon and Audible. It's been a number one bestseller in epic fantasy in the U.S. and the U.K., and an Amazon overall top 100 best-selling title. And you can get the complete trilogy over at audible.com for just one Audible credit. So that's a 46-hour audiobook for just one Audible credit. And here's a description of the book. It says, Arrogant, scornful, full of pride. Darnur, Prince of Dragons, cares nothing for the damage he's done to the faltering alliance against the Shadow. He thinks himself invincible. Right up till a mortal wound forces him to undergo a dangerous rebirthing spell, leaving him a helpless babe in human hands. Twenty years pass, and demonic forces are poised to sweep across the land. With the alliance between humanity, dragons, and fairies fracturing, Darnur will have to uncover the secrets of his past, seek redemption for his sins, and rally the disparate races if they are to survive. Only Darnur can do this, for he's the last member of the royal bloodline, and only he can wield the dragon's blade. His second chance is the world's last hope. So again, the series is called The Dragon's Blade by Michael R. Miller, and you can learn more over at michaelrmiller.co.uk. And if you want to get the word out about your own book, movie, event, or product on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, you can learn more about that over at geeksguideshow.com slash ads. And now here's our interview with Jason Schreier. All right, so we're here with Jason Schreier. Welcome to the show. Hello, David. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so your first book about the video game industry was Blood, Sweat, and Pixels back in 2017. So how did that book come about? Yeah, so um, Blood, Sweat, and Pixels, so it is a book about how games are made, why they're so hard to make, and um, it kind of uses 10 different games as case studies for for trying to answer that question. Why are video games so hard to make? Um, and the way it came about was that um, I had written an article for Kotaku in 2015 about the making of a game called Destiny. And after that, I wound up chatting with my now agent, Charlie Olson, and he was like, hey, we should do a book about this. And we uh, batted around all sorts of different ideas and eventually landed on this kind of anthology of, of game development stories um, that became Blood, Sweat, and Pixels. So did he reach out to you or... Uh, yeah, I mean, he and I had known each other for a little while since then and, and had had a drink before. But yeah, he, he reached out to me after the Destiny article and was like, hey, we should do this. And were publishers pretty receptive to the to the idea for the book? 
Um, yeah, uh, we got some interest. Um, a, a lot of pu- a lot of publishers were reluctant because they didn't think that gamers read books back then. Um, I actually think that Bloodstone Pixels, um, from what I've heard, has actually because it sold really well, it has opened a few doors. Um, for other gaming books to come out since then, which is really, really cool. Um, and I'm really happy about, but yeah, um, that was something we definitely heard. Um, but we wound up finding a great editor, uh, Eric Myers at HarperCollins, who, um, got it immediately and, uh, was really fantastic to work with back then. So I'm trying to think of the timing there, but so like, what were some of the books that came out after this one that it sort of opened the door for? Are we talking about like console wars or like what I'm trying to No, remember. console wars was before. That was a very different type of book. Um, it's smaller stuff. I don't know if there's anything that, that, that you would have heard of. Also, it's some stuff that's like still in the works. Um, because the book came out in towards the end of 2017. Um, and I have a few friends who like pitched books after that in the years that followed that are still, um, still being written still being uh uh published so still not published yet yeah i mean at the rate that publishing goes they could have finished them a long time ago exactly (laughs) exactly but there have been there there are a few books about esports um i just read a, a a pretty good memoir last uh was it last year no it was this year it was a few months ago um yeah, it was last year. God, the days all blend together for me. Um, about, uh, by a guy who worked at Ubisoft who was talking about his experiences in the games industry. Um, we, we've seen a few others. We just saw a cool, very different type of book, but we just saw a book called Ask Iwata come out last month. That was, uh, it's a compilation of, um, interviews with the former, now, uh, uh, deceased president of Nintendo, um, Satoru Iwata. And so there, there's a bunch of stuff out there. Um, and hopefully more to come. So what was that like making that transition from writing articles to writing a book? Was that challenging or did you adapt to it pretty easily or? Yeah. Well, well, so for Bloodstone Pixels, the way that I uh, approached it was I was like, Hey, this is kind of like writing a series of 10 mega Kotaku articles. <laughs> and that was a, a useful way to structure it and a useful way to approach the challenge of writing a book. But actually for my new book, um, press reset, which comes out next week. I actually wanted to do that a little bit differently. I actually wanted it to very deliberately feel like one big story instead of 10 books. So I would say press reset was a little bit, um, more challenging than blood, sweat and pixels because blood, sweat and pixels was very intentionally like, um, 10 individual independent stories. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's definitely, it's a lot more work. It's a lot more reporting. Um, readers, I think have way, different expectations from a book than they do from an article where where an article can be part of a a larger context of reporting and a larger body um a book really needs to be self-contained and have the the sourcing to back it up um but yeah but it's very fun it's it's a fun and enjoyable challenge i would say writing these nonfiction books um and telling people stories and i just love the process of the reporting process is always my favorite part just getting to talk to people and and hearing their stories is always a blast so um yeah it's cool it's it's very rewarding well yeah so i guess let's talk a little bit more about press reset so you said that it's uh you talked about how you wanted to structure it a little bit differently but talk more about kind of what was the what was the initial thought or the initial premise of the of this book yeah, so after Blood, Sword, and Pixels, I um, had an inkling I wanted to do a second book. It took a little while um, to figure out what that was going to be. I had some false starts. I had some ideas that didn't quite work out the way I wanted them to. Um, and then I, I, it took about a year. It was like towards the end of 2018 that I finally landed on this this concept that would become Press Reset. And essentially, I was thinking, okay, 
um, a bunch of uh, a lot of game studios have shut down. There seems to be a lot of like volatility seems to be one of the biggest issues in the video game industry. Why don't I write a book that compiles some of those stories um, and also try to figure out some solutions to these problems? And yeah, the results of that became press reset. I went out and I spoke to people who had been part of all sorts of different studio shutdowns from um, Irrational, the developer of Bioshock, to um, to 38 Studios, the the wild story of uh, Kurt Schilling, baseball player uh starting his own game studio and um yeah it was uh it was it was quite the ride and i'm very proud of the results i I think that'll it'll resonate with people it's funny because you know i'm not really i'm not really a video game journalist but i have a few friends who work in video games and so i just heard stories over the years just kind of random stories and one of them was I, i heard about this studio where the um you know the main company every time a studio finished a game they would shut that studio down and so everyone at the studio was kind of dragging their feet, you know, dragging out this game development as long as possible because they knew as soon as they finished that they would all be, you know, they'd all lose their jobs. And uh, Yep, sounds about right. Yeah, that is very much what this book is about. It's about the kind of like corporate um, shenanigans and mismanagement and the volatility that happens here. Because what's really brutal about it is like... um Unlike, for example, Hollywood, where a lot of people are kind of just expecting to move from one gig to another. The games industry is like, it, it essentially promises, it sells the illusion of careers. It sells the illusion that you'll be at the same company for 10 years, 15 years. Um, but in practice, that, that never actually happens. Like, it, it's not, this is a world where people are bouncing between jobs all the time. And because... uh because people don't have protections, they're not unionized, and because the games industry is all over the world and not just centralized in one place, it can be really, really grueling and brutal to to be doing, um, to to be trying to maintain a career, and it leads to a lot of burnout. And um, I, I think a lot of a lot of people have have left the video game industry for more stable uh, careers elsewhere. Yeah, but so so I had heard stories like that, and I always thought it was just like, oh, that's kind of a weird, funny thing to have happened. And it wasn't until I read your book that I really realized, like, oh no, this is actually like a totally standard thing to happen. Like, this is just you know par for the course. It seems like in in video. Yeah, games. and it's and it's sad because it's like this is a, a an industry that is worth 180 billion dollars. It's only gotten bigger and bigger with the pandemic. So you would think they would be able to keep workers employed, but. Um, Gotta, gotta, gotta see those revenue numbers go up. Please those shareholders. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was funny because, you know, when I was in high school or college, you know, I was thinking about maybe being a lawyer. And my uncle, who's a lawyer, uh, gave me this book to read called A Civil Action. And he's like, oh, this is a, it's a nonfiction book. He's like, this is a great book about lawyers. You'll love it. And I read it and it make, made being a lawyer seem so awful. I kind of lost all interest <laughs> in it. And I wonder if this book is going to serve the same function for, uh, for aspiring <laughs> video game designers. It's funny you ask that. When I, when I, um, wrote Blood, Bloodstone and Pixels, I thought it would have that effect, but really what happened was about half of the people who read Bloodstone and Pixels come and tell me they now want to be a game developer and the other half say, no, I'll never be a game developer now. I think with Press Reset, yes, the numbers will be a little bit different. I think that many more people will say, wow. But here's the thing. I mean, it's a bleak book, but it's also an optimistic book. It's a book that I think uh, is built on the premise that things can and will and need to change. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that I wanted to write this. Like, I didn't just want it to be a book that, 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 examines and points out all these problems without at least offering a few solutions. So those people who read your books and then say they it makes them want to go into video games, why like are they just like they like the challenge or the <laughs> they're adrenaline junkies or like what what is it that they're 
finding. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's something inspirational about the thought of like, like, um, putting your life into, to one of these creative projects. Um, I think especially in Bloodstone Pixels, the, the story of Stardew Valley really inspired a lot of people. Um, of Eric Barone is this one guy who, who made this, uh, multi-million uh unit selling game so yeah i mean there there's there's uh some stuff in there that is certainly inspiring but yeah i i think that like um when people read press reset i think they'll see it less as an inspirational tale and more of like a a cautionary look at and an industry that um has a lot of critical flaws so one thing i was wondering reading the book is like is there literally no one who works in game design who like you know, they have kind of like a calm, stable career and they do a nine to five job and, um, you know, and they, maybe they change jobs every once in a while, but it's not that bad. Like, is there anyone who, who has um, that kind of trajectory? Well, I mean, okay. Yes. There are certainly people who have stayed at the same company for, for 15, 20 years. Um, that is not like, uh, impossible to find. It's rare, but it's not impossible to find. Um, nine to five, absolutely not. There are very few game developers who can get away with working a nine to five career. Um, it's called crunch in the video game industry, the practice of excessive overtime where like everybody says, okay, we, for the next four months, we're all working Saturdays or whatever it may be. Um, that happens on pretty much every game, um, especially in the big budget industry. And so that, that aspect of it is, is kind of like if you're, if you are lucky enough to have a stable career at the same company for that much time, chances are high that you're doing that as well. And so that also drives some people, uh, uh, out of the video game industry. Um, but yes, I mean, there are some people who can, who certainly have found, um, companies to stick with. But there's, there's, is there literally no one who's never done crunch? Like, it's like 100% of people who've worked in video games have done crunch. Um, I, I think it's, uh, I think, a hundred, I, I don't want to say a hundred percent of anything. Like it's, a, I haven't talked to a hundred percent of people, <laughs> but I would say if you ask uh, a, a group of game developers, I think that, that it'll be very hard to find someone who has never, if anyone has worked in, for any extended period of time in the games industry, it would be very difficult to find anyone who has not crunched. Yeah. I mean, so you say it's really, in the book, you say it's really rare for people to work 30 years in the game industry. And so considering that people, um, I think usually start when they're about 20, uh, they're still pretty young when they leave, right? So what, uh, what do they all go into after they leave video games? Yeah, I mean, in some cases, um, there's one case spotlighted in the book about a guy named Zach Bumbach who wound up, um, leaving for another field entirely and went into architecture, essentially. Um, there's some people who wind up going indie and trying to pursue their own paths, um, uh, some people who left Irrational, as an example, wound up going into banking. Some people go into software development. There's a lot of space out there. There's a lot of jobs out there for like, especially if you're in a more technical oriented discipline like programming, um, you can wind up getting a, a more stable and way more lucrative job at a tech company, as an example. Um, and yeah, I mean, a lot of people are looking for programmers. A lot of like software development houses are looking for programmers all the time. And same with like, like artists. There are a lot of jobs out there for, for people who leave. I mean, one thing I noticed reading the book is that there's lots of points where you say executives decline to comment or like this company declined to comment or whatever. Mm-hmm. How much um, how much of a headache was that for you not being not getting comments from from so many 
companies or um, executives? I mean, it, it's annoying, but like I, I certainly expected that and was was um, anticipating that going in. Um, the video game industry is very opaque. Um, big companies never comment on things unless they absolutely have to, um, and it's they see it as in their best interest to not talk about these things. And yeah, I mean, it's their prerogative but yeah i mean the games industry people are always shocked um people who don't follow the games industry are always shocked by how secretive it is um but yeah it's it's extremely uh pr people uh, are hold hold their companies like their uh their secrets like their nuclear nuclear <laughs> war missile codes and stuff like that it's pretty wild and i would imagine a lot of good developers they don't want are they reluctant to talk to you because they're afraid of how it might affect their careers going forward yeah, I mean, I actually, I didn't find a hard, t- I didn't, I didn't have a hard time finding people who were willing to talk for this book. Um, most of the people in the book are on the record telling their stories. Um, I think they find it valuable to share their experiences and, and, um, I think that can be a very, uh, useful thing. Um, it can be useful for, for, um, it can be useful as a warning tale. It can be useful to help others who are going through the same sorts of experiences find catharsis. Um, it can be useful to, to help change things. So yeah, I think a lot of people, a lot of the developers themselves find, find value in, in sharing their stories with the reporters as opposed to the companies and, and the executives, as you mentioned. Was there anyone who was reluctant to tell their story who you kind of like encouraged them and they, they ended up telling their story to you? Um, uh, I don't remember if anyone was super reluctant. I don't think so. Um, I, I was, I, I got a lot more resistance just from the people who were on the top. Um, I tried to very hard to get Kurt Schilling, the former baseball player to talk to me, but, and he, he seemed interested, but then just kind of ghosted me and disappeared. Um, so that was unfortunate, but yeah, I mean, I would like to get more of those executive perspectives, certainly, but, um, they just would not want to talk. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, uh, one of my favorite series growing up was the Ultima series of role-playing games. And so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm still angry at Electronic Arts for, for shutting down Origin, the studio that made those <laughs> games. And I gather, I mean, I, st- I still sort of pay attention to games, but definitely not as much as I used to. But I, I definitely get the feeling that there's this all this animosity toward Electronic Arts. And um, I'm just curious what you make of that and like how um, how legitimate do you think that is? Yeah, um, I think that, that, uh, one of my favorite chapters, I mean, one of the most interesting chapters, I think, is, is the first one about Warren Spector's journey, and he spent a lot of time at Origin and had to deal with a lot of those executives, which I think is really interesting. Um, yeah, there's a lot of animosity towards EA in the industry, a lot of animosity towards, um, other big companies as well, um, for good and for bad reasons. I mean, yeah, it, it, it really depends. I mean, a lot of gamers are just angry about, um, some micro transaction or another some greedy greedy move from 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 um the corporations and that's fair um but uh yeah i mean it, it really just depends i mean because i sort of thankfully missed this but um you describe in the book these games where there will be timers like load screens basically mm-hmm. but they're just you have to pay if you want to mm-hmm. you know uh skip the load screen basically and it just seems yeah yep. like so um you know, evil and, and aggravating. <laughs> yeah, that's like a common trend in the mobile world is this idea of like, yeah, we're going to give you just enough. We're going to give you this like small sampling of fun. And if you want more, you just got to keep playing. And they're going after what are called whales, who are the, uh, the mobile players who spend 
many, many dollars, thousands of dollars on games. Um, and yeah, it's all very predatory and just preys on addiction and it's all, uh, all pretty messed up. Um, and yeah, EA has certainly played a large role in that as well as, as showcased in the book with the, the Dungeon Keeper mobile game that, that yes, relied on those timers. And those, that, that, those timers, that's, that wasn't like something that was like trendy for a while and is sort of fading, but it's still going strong. Um, yeah, I mean, as far as I know, it is Clash of Clans is still a very popular game and that relies on those timers. Um, the mobile gaming industry, the, the, the world of phone games is kind of like its own beast because it plays by very different rules than the traditional world of gaming. Um, and one of those rules is just the, 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 the timers, um, and the tolerance. I think people who play games on phones have, different levels of tolerance for for these microtransaction payments that um, maybe people who play on consoles and PCs would not. I mean, the other thing is that phone games are almost entirely free. Um, and the way to make a game, uh, make money with a game on your phone is to, uh, to release it for free and then sell those microtransactions to people. Yeah. Well, let me read. This is probably the line that sort of jumps out to me the most from the whole book is you're profiling this, this developer. He's fairly young, I think, at the time, uh, Zach Mumbach. And, uh, and it says, while Mumbach and his colleagues had crunched on games like Battlefield Hardline, he'd watch those EA executives leave the office at 3 p.m. every day. He'd always thought he needed to put in extra hours to be the elite of the elite, to be Kobe Bryant. But the people who actually got paid like superstar athletes were working 40 hour weeks. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, that's the reality. And it's like very much a, a feature of, of late stage capitalism where like the people who are in the C-suite are bringing in the real money and, and, um, making the financial decisions while the people who actually make the games are just, uh, are, are working very long hours and not making nearly as much. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned that you, um, you were proposing some solutions. Like, could you give us a quick rundown of what you think ought to be done to change this? Yeah, there are a few things. Um, I think that like, um, one of the things that I explore is remote work, which has suddenly become very relevant over the past year. Um, and I think that like one of the, the problems with volatility is that you can wind up stuck in a city where there are no other game jobs. Because like I said before, the game job is, the games industry is so decentralized that it's not like there's, there's one area where you get all your jobs. So if you wind up losing your job and you're, I don't know, stuck in Boston or something like that, um, you would have to move 3000 miles away to potentially to get your next games job. And so like that is just unrealistic for a lot of people. They have to uproot their lives and take their kids out of school and stuff. It's just not, not going to happen. And so that that's one of the reasons that people burn out. And if they could just work remotely, if they could get a job anywhere without having to move, that might change things and might might make the the games industry way more accommodating to a lot more people. Um, so that's just one thing. The other thing is unionization, which I think feels inevitable. Um, I think it's going to happen. The only question is is what what's that going to look like? Um, and that's the other one of the other things I explored, and then some other stuff that 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 I explored in their specialization and outsourcing and stuff like that. So when if you talk to like a like a teenager who's really into games and wants to work in games and if they were to ask you like should I go into games or like what approach should I take to get a job what kind of advice do you give them 
I mean, I would probably tell most teenagers not to get into games unless they like really, really want to, unless they can't imagine doing anything else. Um, it is not really an industry that, that treats people well as of right now. It's not an industry that is stable or well paid. It's also an industry that is tons and tons of, uh, of, of demand. Um, and, or sorry, sorry, tons and tons of supply Supply, and, uh, not a lot of demand. And so, yeah, it's just kind of like, uh, 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 not not the most uh, ideal um, place to work. I mean, just as I was reading through this, I was looking at or, or I was noticing different ways that people had gotten into the industry. So I have a little list here. Uh, get an internship, get a job as a QA tester or community manager, make a mod, um, one person make a YouTube video. Do any of those, are any of those no longer a good way Uh to get into, to get into games? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm sure that, that they are. Um, I think that, like, uh, um, it really depends. I mean, there's so many different fields and disciplines in games that it really depends what you want to do in games. In general, like, one of the best ways, I think, is if you want to actually make games is to, uh, is to, to go and make a game. It's very, it's easier than ever because of, like, um, tools like Game Maker and Unreal and Unity. You can just download a program and, and start making a game on your own. So if you do want to get into the games industry, I think that tends to be, um, one of the best ways is just, like, you make a game and you send it to people and, and it's, it's uh, uh if they like it then maybe they'll they'll want to hire you because it says in the book in the 90s and early 2000s one of the best ways to learn how to develop video games was to make mods which made it sound like maybe subsequently it, that wasn't one of the best ways to get into the video games or yeah i mean i think it, it's it's less popular now because you don't have to do mods um and you can do more like actually making something new. Um, you have a lot more flexibility now. Back then, back then, um, making mods was like, like, uh, it wasn't as easy to just download a program and start making your own game that you could then show people. Instead, you would download someone else's game and like play around with the art and stuff like that. Um, it was a lot more difficult in the nineties and early two thousands to, um, sit down and just create your own thing and, and show they, show that to people. I mean, and when you're talking about this guy, Derek Wilkes, you say he'd gotten an offer after making some impressive Half-Life videos on his YouTube channel. So how does, how do you go from, like, what kind of things would appeal to companies to hire you that you might be doing on YouTube? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that people were impressed by, like, the, the style of, cinematic videos he was making because he was he wanted to be a, a like he wanted to be making cinematics and so he was making his own cinematics and showing to them um but yeah i mean it depends uh, lots of different companies are hiring game developers for different reasons uh it's not uh uh i i've never actually worked for a game company so i don't know what people what recruiters are out there looking for but um but yeah i mean i think in general like if you're working for a creative company and you're looking for creative people, you want to see what people can create. And I think that can come in a bunch of different forms. What do you think of these like game design classes and game design degrees and stuff like that? Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know a, a lot about that, that world. Uh, uh, well, cause you, you, uh, in the book, Warren Spector said, you know, he, he was, um, for a while he was at UT Austin Mm-hmm. Kind of yep. in charge of their program. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. He was lecturing on games a lot with folks, but but I, from the perspective of like like game companies hiring people, um, I think that like the, those can be useful feeders for people. I mean, people can certainly learn a lot, but 
but the the solution to like like if someone were to ask me how do I get into the games industry, um, assuming they they were not dissuaded by me <laughs> saying you probably shouldn't work in the games industry, um, the the best answer I think is to go and create something and show it to people. Yeah, well, because you you quote you quote Warren Spector in the book, he says I spent a lot of the those three years trying to raise money and discovering that a people in the game business don't value education very much and b they're really cheap son uh, cheap sons of bitches. Mm-hmm. Uh, so are yeah. people, <laughs> what do you think about are they cheap sons of bitches? Um, I guess so. If that's what Warren Spector <laughs> <laughs> says, I I trust him there. Yeah. Um. How about doing being a video game journalist? Is there much uh, much opportunity for people who are video game journalists to become game designers? I, I mean, it's, I, I certainly hope not. Like that doesn't, that, that sort of trend is, is it definitely happens where people go into journalism knowing that they have the, the ultimate goal of getting into the video game industry, but it's not really great. And it's really bad for journalism in general. Um, because people are not going to, uh, journalists kind of need to be adversarial and burn bridges sometimes and be brutally honest. And if someone is coming into journalism with the ultimate goal of wanting to go work for a game company, they're not going to be able to have that kind of honesty and, and, uh, truth telling that, that you'll, uh, you need as a journalist. And so they're, they're not going to be really willing to burn bridges. So yeah, it's not an ideal way to, to, to approach, um, media, I would say. So how does uh, being a video game journalist compare to being a video game designer in in terms of uh, career stability? Are they both pretty unstable or is one more unstable (laughs) than the other? I mean, working as in any media is incredibly um, unstable. That's for sure. Um, I guess the biggest difference is that the games industry actually makes money. And that, that is what kind of, what's kind of striking about all this is that you might be able to draw parallels between media and games and media like I said, it's very volatile. It's, it's, um, prone to layoffs and shutdowns and that sort of thing happens all the time in the media world. But the difference is that the games industry is making $180 billion a year in revenue. So it's, it's really, uh, it's, it's a little easier to, to understand why it happens in media than it is to understand why it happens in, uh, in, in, in the games industry. So what do you think, just looking back on the history of games, what do you think would have been some of the best companies to work for? Like over, you know, in in any time or place, what what would be the best working conditions? Um, I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, I don't don't really think that. Like, I mean, yeah, I I I don't know. I I think that like some of these problems have um existed. Some of the problems that I examined in Presser said have existed for the past. 20, 30, 40 years. Um, and well, I don't know, like, uh, <laughs> I haven't talked to people who've worked at every single company in the history of games. So I'm not a hundred percent sure, like, like which had worse, had it worse than others. Um, I've certainly start, heard all sorts of stories about, um, horror stories about work conditions, um, throughout the course of the video game industry since it really started in the 1980s. Um, back in the days in the nineties and so, and, and, um, uh, uh, or 80s, I suppose, people were, were working in like, essentially it was like people in frat houses developing games, like a dozen dudes, uh, all like drinking Diet Coke and eating pizza and staying up all night making games. Um, and while that might have been fun for some people, it's like the type of thing that you can only really do in your twenties. And the games industry has professionalized in some ways since then, but, um, but, as a whole, it still has a lot of, uh, a lot of growing pains to, to deal with. And, um, a lot of, uh, it still has a lot to, a lot of 
way to go before it starts cheating its workers uh, in a healthy, sustainable way. Because it just seems to me, just from my kind of from my outsider perspective, that there have just been certain like a lot of my favorite games. It seems like the people were having fun making them. You know, like uh, the early Doom games, the early LucasArts games, the early Sierra games. Um, I feel like, you know, like, like you can sort of tell, or at least I feel like I can tell that people were having fun, you know, that kind of comes through in the game. Whereas, you know, as a lot of those companies go along, you know, you sort of, you know, they get, they get big and this sort of grind sets in and you can sort of feel the, you know, the, the sort of the lack of, uh, fun in the, in the end product. Yeah, but I mean the the trade off for that is that um the 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 fun can sometimes mean some of those old games can sometimes be developed by people who are like um just working crazy hours and they just had fun doing it because they were younger and maybe when they got older it was like oh man like this is less fun I have a family now I want to <laughs> go spend time with them and so I think part of it is just that the the early games industry was not was very young and very not professionalized just yet. Um, but yeah, I mean, it really depends. I mean, there's so many different companies with so many different styles of, of, and ways of working. Um, but the modern industry, which is really what Press Reset and most of my work is focused on is, um, is still, still, still dealing with growing pains from, um, from, from, from those days. I mean, um, you know, cause like one of my favorite books is Masters of Doom by David Kushner. And there's an incident in that that has always really stuck in my mind. So, so basically, the founders of id Software, they were working for another company. Um, I think it was called SoftDisk. And SoftDisk was really making a big investment in them uh, in hopes that they would, uh, you know, that they would be a big hit. And um, what they were doing is that, like, on the weekends, they were basically stealing the computers from work and taking them to this uh, house on a lake and then doing their own stuff because they didn't have good enough computers um, to be able to do game development uh, that they mm-hmm. owned. And then they would return them, you know, before work on, on Monday morning. And um, and when it came out that this had been that this had been happening, you know, and that they, they announced that they were leaving, you know, it says in the book that... Um, that the that their boss was you know was sort of in a pretty strong position to pursue litigation against them and just kind of um you know felt that he didn't want to and just kind of let mm-hmm. them go um but it, it just always makes me wonder like you know is that sort of unethical behavior or something you know there's this line um behind every great fortune is a great crime and i just wonder like is it like going back to my earlier, earlier question about the nine to five hours and stuff like is it possible to just be kind of like you know normal and hardworking and and everything and and be a success uh in the video game industry is it is it possible to work normal hours and be a success in the games industry no to, well yeah, to not you know to not um you know to not have anything crazy happen you know what i mean like like is there just like you know does, yeah does i mean i i guess what you're the rules so, yeah, I mean, I guess what you're describing is kind of what I was talking about when I was talking about the early days when there were no rules. Um, and I think since then, the games industry has gotten a lot more professionalized. And while there's still some, some crazy stuff happening as, as press reset details, like with 38 studios and, and Kurt Schilling just kind of <laughs> running this company into the ground. Um, there's that sort of thing. I mean, th- this idea of like, of like the swashbuckling, uh, going around selling, selling your games on discs and in, in Ziploc bags and, 
stealing equipment from your your day job so you could go home and and make games at night um as the games industry has professionalized that has changed a lot um but yeah but 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 as we've seen i mean it's very difficult to um make a career in the games industry and also like have a life at the same time and that unfortunately has not changed since since some of those early days um and i think there are certainly people who like who who would reminisce about those days and like veterans in the games industry who would who would um who would who would kind of like put those days on a pedestal and and say like oh you got to pay your dues you got to put in 16 hours a day to do this um and that's certainly one mentality another mentality is that workers should should put in their work hours because especially when they're working for other people and the profits are wind up going to C-suite executives at the very top, like the ones that, that you quoted earlier. Um, so, so it's a little bit different and it's always very different when you're doing something for yourself, when you're like an indie game developer, when you're in software and starting your own thing and trying to make it big on your own, as opposed to like working for a corporation where the executives next door are making $30 million bonuses. So yeah, I mean, things are very different now than they were back then. But yeah, I mean, as Press Reset, I think tries to dig into, um, there's, there's a lot that needs to improve in order to make this, uh, this business more sustainable for people. Well, let's talk about, yeah, about the 38 studios. Cause that was definitely sort of, like a very unique situation, right, in the video game industry. Yeah, well, so, I mean, 38 Studios is a story of a guy named Kurt Schilling, who was a baseball player for the Red Sox, um, legendary baseball player. Um, And he he decided one day... um, he was a big gamer. He decided one day, I'm going to start a game studio. And after he retired, he wound up putting all of his time into this thing, became the CEO of this game studio. Um, and well, not CEO, I guess he was just kind of founder, but, um, but yeah. And, and, uh, after about five, six years, um, things just exploded. And what happened was he wound up taking out a bunch of money from the state of Rhode Island as uh, a loan guarantee um, from the state of Rhode Island and burned through it all and just spent a lot and essentially mismanaged the studio, thinking that he would always find a way to make it work. Um, and things did not work out. And a whole bunch of people, hundreds of people were left kind of stranded in Rhode Island. They were robbed of their final paychecks and they just, uh, they, they were just kind of screwed over. Um, and it's all just a sad, unfortunate story. What do you think of just the basic idea of a state giving $75 million to a game company to move to that state? Is that just a boondoggle in and of itself? Or do you see situations in which that might be a, a good investment for the state? Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of strange. I don't, I, I, it's, it's the, um, decision makers in Rhode Island at the time, even then there was skepticism, but the decision makers, their logic was Rhode Island was kind of in trouble at the time. They were still feeling the effects from the 2008 recession. Um, they had this vision of like, uh, uh, and Donald Carcieri, who was the governor at the time, he had this vision of a Silicon Valley of the East, um, based in Providence, Rhode Island. And like he thought 38 studios would be like the nucleus. And not only would it bring hundreds of jobs to Rhode Island and like suddenly support, bring all these people who would spend money on like the neighboring bars and restaurants and coffee shops. Um, but also that like he thought other game developers or other tech companies would follow. And so I guess, I, I guess their logic kind of made sense. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I'm 
not a, a, a politician, so I, I, I would have a hard time saying whether like that's an appropriate amount of money to spend in a case like this. Um, but, but like the, the logic did make sense and, and you can see why like a desperate governor who had vowed to made all these promises to his state about bringing back jobs and stuff, um, why he would want to, to pull off some, some crazy move like this and the publicity he would bring in. Um, it, it made sense in some ways, even if, uh, even if they, it seems like they were kind of sold, uh, 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 an illusion <laughs> based on uh, what what the company was actually doing and what it was capable of pulling off. I mean, do you think that given that one example that that's never going to happen again? Uh, you know. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I think yes, this was a cautionary tale for <laughs> for most uh, most other state governors. That's for sure. I mean, it was a really heartbreaking thing because you know I interviewed R. A. Salvatore back when that was first getting going. He, they had hired mm. uh, Thirty Eight Studios had hired him to do sort of the uh, the world building for the mm-hmm. for the game, and what he was describing sounded really, really amazingly cool. Um, and so it's sort of sad to think of it. I don't know what it, what the disposition of that intellectual property is at this point, but it's it's sort of sad to think of it being locked away forever. Yeah, I mean, oftentimes things sound really, really cool on gaming, and then you actually have to make the thing. And I think people who aren't experienced in games really just have like this sudden, um, um, shock when they see just how complicated and difficult it is to actually make games. Um, and what happened with Schilling, I mean, what happened with this company really is that most of the people at the very top, including him, including Salvador, including others, Todd McFarlane, among others, um, had no experience making games or very little experience making games. And that I think really led them to kind of underestimate the challenges that that were that were going to um fa- that they were going to have to face. And ultimately, I think that 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 is one of the main reasons that the studio fell apart. Okay, so the thing this is something I was talking about on a recent episode, but one of the things that really frustrates me, I guess sort of speaking of a similar sort of issue is that um you have these designers like Ron Gilbert and Richard Garriott and they've said that they want to go back to, you know, Monkey Islands, go back to Ultima and can't because they don't control the, the rights. And, um, and it's just really, fr- and, and then the nothing else is being done with the rights. And it's just so frustrating to me. And I just wonder, mm. uh, is there any, anything that could be done? Do you think to get, <laughs> get those guys there back working back on Monkey Islands and, and Ultima? <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I mean, I think Ron Gilbert would just have to sit down with Disney and, and negotiate the rights and, and see how much he would have to pay them for it or how much of a, a cut they would want to take if they, they license it out. Um, who knows? Maybe one day it really just depends like who's in charge of any given corporation on any given day and like, um, who, if they're in the right mood at the right time and stuff like that. I mean, do you think there could be any kind of like fan campaign or like, uh, I don't know, because I feel like these companies are so big, it's often like you don't even know who to, you can't even, it's not even like they reject the offer. It's just like you can't even get anyone in a position of authority to even listen to the proposal. Yeah, I mean, uh, it depends. Um, sometimes fan campaigns work, sometimes they don't. It's all just kind of a crapshoot. Um when it comes to like Disney and Monkey Island, I mean, I I, I don't think that, that <laughs> any sort of fan campaign would do much. Um <laughs> short of like hitting the same sort of like cultural buzz as the the whole Snyder Snyder cut thing um i don't know i don't know how much uh how much room there is to be optimistic there hmm. 
I mean, one thing that I was noticing was that, you know, so many of these um, games had been in, especially if they're in kind of in development hell, that they'd been in development for like two years or something. And there was like literally nothing playable, you know, like people would come Mm -hmm. in and be like, can I play the game? And they're like, no, there's nothing playable. And they're like, haven't you been working on this for years, you know? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. one thing I thought was interesting with Richard Garriott is that when he did Shroud of the Avatar, they had to like, you could play everything they did. So like the first version, it's just like a guy in a sort of fenced in yard and you can walk around and punch a chicken and that's like the whole game but you could play it and then as they added stuff you know you could keep playing every version that they made and i was just wondering what you uh what do you think of that as a as a development technique yeah i mean i think when you're developing um and you use kickstarter to make your money and you kind of owe fans as you go and you kind of have obligations to like show fans what you're doing or or send fans builds or whatever it is you're doing um the expectations are a little bit different and the pressures can be very different and and sometimes that can be a good thing because it can kind of like um force you to just get on your ass and and put something together um and i think that can be a a healthy thing in some ways it can also be an unhealthy thing in other ways because you can kind of work on a game forever sometimes it won't turn out as great as you imagine sometimes you'll have to reveal things before they're ready and and show things off before they're ready to fans and yeah i mean i think there are a lot of pros and cons to that approach it just seems weird to me that so many games that there's not you know you think that they would start off with something that's kind of fun to play and then build off of that rather than you know building tons and tons of assets and just hoping that it comes together some point years down the line yeah, I mean, I think the problem is that it's very hard to know if something is fun to play. I mean, once you've been, uh, you might think something is going to be cool and then you put it out and practice and it turns out to be really terrible. Um, and then you have to reboot everything. It's, it's very, very difficult to know on paper whether something is going to be good and fun. Um, and like oftentimes you'll run into issues where like you need to just keep tweaking and iterating and, and seeing what works and what doesn't. Um, but it, it depends really what the goal of your game is in the first place. If your goal, if your goal is to like have a specific type of, of gameplay mechanic that nobody's done before, like to tell a really crazy story or something like that. So really it just all kind of depends on, on the type of game you're making and what your, your overall goals are. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, I had, I had interviewed Warren Spector and he seems like a very uh, calm guy. So I was kind of surprised mm-hmm. in your book to read about this incident with him getting into shouting matches with Disney executives mm-hmm. and throwing a pen against the wall or something. Yeah. And yeah you yeah, also yeah. mentioned Ken Levine kind of like shouting at employees and stuff like that. And I was just wondering, is that one of those like increasing, you, you were talking about the increasing professionalization of the games industry. Is that kind of mm-hmm. becoming less uh, common or do you still have temperamental geniuses shouting <laughs> at people? Um, I think that still happens. Um, I think that, that, um, it's certainly less common than it was. Um, I think that, that, yeah, I mean, I guess it, it depends. I, I'm curious to see like how many people would actually put up with that sort of thing these days and in today's climate. Um, but yeah, I mean, big difference between someone kind of losing their cool at an executive in a meeting and someone who I think is, has a reputation for yelling at, at staff. Um, I think there's a, there's a pretty big difference there. But yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's wild. And obviously like emotions are high when you're working on something as difficult and complicated as a video game, something that's as tough to really get right as a game is. Um, I think it's, it's certainly leads to a lot of, heightened emotions and uh and 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 um yeah i mean for better and for worse i mean so these some of these behind the scenes stories was this stuff that since you have been a video game journalist for so long that you were pretty much aware of or were there 
were you surprised by any of the things that you found out from these these interviews you did for this book? I mean, some of the broad strokes I was aware of, but then like specifics I was, I was learning for the first time by talking to these people. Um, for the most part, like I, I had a good idea, uh, of what these stories would look like, but then I learned a lot along the way. Like I learned a lot about like, I knew that there was a company called Mythic, Mythic and they made games and I knew, um, how, I knew that they were, were, had made these, these popular MMOs back in the day and that they eventually shut down. But like, I didn't know the, the actual details of everything that happened when they made these, like this, this w- crummy, poorly received mobile game, uh, Dungeon Keeper. And then, um, when they, uh, when they, I didn't know the, the details of like people leaving and forming and making enter the dungeon and stuff like that. So that was really fascinating. And, and same with most of the other chapters, just leaving the details, uh, learning the details was really interesting. Yeah, with that Dungeon Keeper game, one of the lines from the book that really stuck with me is it says something, because this is a game, you know, it was this beloved old franchise, and they turned it into this mobile game with these timers that that we were talking about that you had to pay mm-hmm. to get past. And there was this line about how um, microtransactions and nostalgia were not a good combination. Mm. <laughs> That's true. Yep. Yeah. Um. One thing Warren Spector says in this book is when, um, whenever, uh, executives are saying, you know, you have to get this done by this deadline or whatever, he challenges them. Can you name one game that is shipped on time and on budget that anybody cares about? So I'm curious, <laughs> Jason, can you name one game that is shipped on time and on budget that anybody cares about? No, I can't even name one game that's shipped on time. I've never <laughs> heard of a game that like wasn't delayed past its original release date. Why do you think it is that they, that this um, is so uh, repeated so often and that they don't get a better idea of how long it's going to take to make these games. Yeah. I mean, in, in most, in like software development, you can generally schedule things because you know exactly what you have to do. Um, if I were making like a word processing software, I would know that, okay, I need this to, to make documents and I need it to print words on the screen when you type them. And I would know like, okay, this has to function in this way. But with a game, like you not only need it to function and not be buggy, you also need it to be fun to play. And that nebulous concept of fun, like adds so many, so many uh, uh, wrenches into the whole situation because it's like, um, how do I know that this game is going to be fun? How do I know exactly how long it's going to take before I make this game fun? How do I lo- how do I know whether this this will be four year four weeks before I make it fun or eight weeks? Um, it's just impossible. And so all of game scheduling is just essentially based on educated guesses. Um, and usually you can you can kind of make broad guesses, but the details are are always going to be changing. And so every single game <laughs> is always going to slip at some point or another. I mean, is it the case that they're like, okay, our last game took two years to make, so we're just going to assume our next game is going to take three years to make, and then it ends up taking four years to make or something? And it keeps like, they keep assuming, they, they keep building this buffer in, but then they keep exceeding the buffer? Um, yeah, but it's the opposite. Like the first game always takes a really long time. And oftentimes these game developers are working on their tools for their games as the same, at the same time as they're making the games, which can make things really convoluted and complicated and, and, and tricky to schedule. So yeah, I mean, people do build in buffers. It's true. But like, yeah, oftentimes those buffers are just not enough. Yeah. Um, I was just curious. I saw that you recently you moved from Kotaku, where you were for about nine years, I think, to Bloomberg. And I was just curious, like, sort of, what mm-hmm. is the what has that transition been like for you? Yeah, it's interesting. Well, so Kotaku um, is a, a 
video game site and the audience reads Kotaku is all gamers. Um, so it's safe to assume that like they'll have some level of knowledge and, and that some, some certain stories will be appealing to them as opposed to, uh, being in a mainstream publication where like our readership doesn't have that knowledge. And also our readership might not be interested in the types of stories that I might write for Kotaku. So it's been a really interesting challenge and, and really interesting learning experience to be writing for, for just that different audience. Um, I found it fascinating so far. I've, I've learned so much from my talented colleagues over here. It's been cool. It's been really cool. So could you give like any examples of what sort of what adjustments you need to make in your storytelling approach? Like, um, yeah, I mean, just the, just like the bigger picture stuff. There's always a question of like, what's the bigger picture here? What's the bigger story here? What's the nut graph? Um, and so like stuff that, that is a little more granular that I might have done as a story at Kotaku just won't work, um, at Bloomberg because it's just like not big picture enough. Instead of just saying like this studio within EA did this thing, it has to be like a broader story about EA and what this means for the games industry as a whole. So it's a lot more broader looks and that sort of thing. Has there been anything that really surprised you that you, you would have thought everybody knew? And then once you get out of kind of the games worlds, you're like, oh, wait, people <laughs> don't know what a, I don't know, what a controller is or like, like really basic things like that. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, hmm, that's a good question. Um, nothing that I've run into just yet. Um, I think one of the things that is throwing a lot of people off is all the names because the nomenclature in the video game industry is so convoluted and confusing that like, like, for example, there's a company called Activision Blizzard that's a big publisher. But within that, there's Blizzard Entertainment. And Blizzard Entertainment has recently been getting a lot of influence from Activision, the corporate side of things. So you have Activision Blizzard, the company, Activision as an entity, Blizzard as an entity, and it's all just a mess. So, yeah, I mean, that can drive my editors crazy is trying to deal with all this all this video game nomenclature. It's It gets a little out of control. I was also just curious in your bio, it says that you, you list the different um, sites that you've written for. And one of them is the Onion News Network. I was just curious what you did for the Onion mm-hmm. News Network. Yeah, um, I was an intern for the Onion back in the day and wrote a few headlines um, for their video department, which I don't believe exists anymore. But back in the day, there, there was a whole video segment. And um, yeah, I worked with them for a little while. It was, it was, it was quite fun. Do you remember any of your headlines? I do. Um, I wrote one headline for a video that got made. I was very proud. Um, it is called, here, let me look it up. Um, it is, it's like a send up of Guantanamo. Okay. Here's that. The headline is, um, is using a minotaur to gore detainees a form of torture? And it's like kind of a send up of Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> and <laughs> the question of like, should it be removed? And so it's this panel of people, uh, seriously discussing whether, whether the Minotaur and the Labyrinth is torture <laughs> or whether it should be removed. Did you have or, or do you have ambitions as a humor writer or was that just kind of like a random job that you... I was just exploring when I was um, when I was uh, uh, kind of figuring out what I wanted to do. I was just exploring a bunch of different stuff in college and stuff. I always knew I wanted to be a writer, but I wasn't sure exactly what that would look like. Uh-huh. Um, all right. So we're almost out of time. So um, why don't we start wrapping this up? Um, I know you do have a, uh, a new podcast called triple click that you're doing. Mm-hmm. So do you want to just yeah. tell people about that? Yeah. Um, yeah. My former colleagues at Kotaku, um, Kirk Hamilton and Maddie Myers and I, uh, do this weekly gaming podcast, triple click. Um, it's a lot of fun. 
worth worth checking out if you're into games. Um, one one area in which we pride ourselves is is being a podcast that's like not just for the hardcore gamers, and and we try to make it appealing to adults who like maybe casually play games and just want to hear about the latest. So, uh, yeah, go check it out. Was there any particular moment where you're like, we should do a podcast or? Well, we'd always been doing a podcast at Kotaku, and when we all decided we were going to leave Kotaku, um, we just wanted to keep podcasting together. But, uh, but I've been, I've been doing, we started our podcast ages ago, um, like 2015 or something like that. All right, cool. Yeah, I mean, I started this in 2010, so that's how old as a podcaster. <laughs> nice. Um, all right, cool. So then, or do you just have any other uh, final thoughts or any other projects you want to let people know about? No, I'm just really excited about Press You Said. I hope people check it out and I hope they dig it. Um, it's out May 11th and yeah, hopefully, hopefully people enjoy the book. Yeah, no, it's, it's really, I mean, I read, I read it so fast. It's a real page turner and, um, yeah, just so, like you said, so many human stories and so much conflict and so many crazy behind the scenes things. So yeah, I definitely recommend if you're interested in, in all that stuff to check it out. And so we've been speaking with Jason Schreier. And again, the book, it's called Press Reset. So, Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me, David. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Jason Schreier for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I also want to thank Michael R. Miller for sponsoring today's show. Check out his epic fantasy trilogy, The Dragon's Blade, over at michaelrmiller.co.uk. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.